Live from Chatterbox Sports Studios, it's Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. Well, good morning, good morning, and good morning. And yes, I am donning the alma mater, the Ohio University Bobcats. We'll get to them here in just a second. I've got a little delay in my ear here. Oh, is that what this is? Okay. All right. I had that on last night to listen to Stephen A. Smith go at it with Paul Feinbaum over Alabama. And Feinbaum, who is the king of the SEC, right? He says that everybody's catching up with Alabama. Said this is now five years, five years, where Alabama's only won one national championship, where it used to be kind of an every other year thing. But I drift off. We get back to the Bobcats in a minute. Good morning, and welcome to Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. I'm Tom Brenneman. We come your way every single day from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern time. You can find us at Chatterbox Sports, YouTube slash Chatterbox Sports. Many of you are in the house already. We appreciate you being here. We ask you to please subscribe and flip on the notification switch. If you prefer to join us in podcast form, by all means, please do. Search Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman, and you're dialed in. Joe Mixon, not a surprise, named the AFC's Offensive Player of the Week. After rushing for 153 yards, he had receiving for 58, scores a franchise record five touchdowns in the route of Carolina. Bengals are off this week, play the Steelers. Again, that game was moved. 425 in the afternoon next Sunday, not a Sunday night game. All right, now on to college football. Week two of the college football playoff rankings released last night. No surprise, Georgia, after hammering Tennessee, is the new number one. The mighty Ohio State Buckeyes are in number two, Michigan, number three. And guess, boys, who jumped to number four? Paul, you're sporting the purple and white. Look, if there's ever a day to wear this, I'm going to wear it today. The Horn Frogs of TCU. Number four, we love it. Now, they are a seven-point underdog, having said that, this Saturday at Texas. Tennessee goes from number one down to number five, and man, do things get interesting after that. You've got Oregon with one loss at six, and then you have LSU after beating Alabama. Two losses, not one time in the brief history of the college football playoff. I believe 2014 was the first year. There has not been a two-loss team to make the college football playoff. Would LSU do that if it wins out and right through the SEC championship game? News and notes around the NFL Cowboys owner Jerry Jones said on his weekly radio show yesterday, the team is interested in former star Odell Beckham Jr. The former Ram tore his ACL, you may remember, in last year's Super Bowl against the Bengals and is starting to draw interest as he rehabs The Cowboys ranked 25th in passing offense and have not had a player eclipse 100 receiving yards in a game so far this year. The Indianapolis Colts saying gets weirder by the day. They named Jeff Saturday, who's never been a head coach except the high school level. He takes over, leaving ESPN. Now he's a head coach. But get this. They now have a new offensive play caller who's never done it before anywhere not one time and who knows maybe parks frazier will be great at it you think you can do it i know i think i can do it maybe he's the perfect guy for the gig 
The Colts take on the Raiders this Sunday. Frazier, by the way, an ordained minister and a former quarterback at Murray State. And last but not least, we're going to get to Marty Brenneman here in a second because his longtime partner and I used to battle back and forth all the time. He loved, he loved Miami. He still does in heaven above. But unfortunately for him, they have to play Ohio University every year in football. 37-21, to the Bobcats roll in Oxford last night. This quarterback for OU, they, they, they got a good team. I mean, all bias aside, they got a really nice-looking team. Quarterback throws for 362 yards and three touchdowns. Curtis Rourke this year has thrown 24 touchdowns and only four interceptions. The Bobcats rush for nearly 200 on top of all the passing and sit alone atop the Mac East at 7-3 and three on the season, boys. How about that? Bobcats. That was a tail kicking last night. It was. Strong second half. Real strong second half. They closed the game well. Maction, it delivered last night. It did. It delivered. There were some good games in Maction last night, and they still have a couple of more weeks at it. Um, coming up on the show today, as you know, Wednesdays are the big interview, and we have Dr. Timothy Kremchek today, the medical director of the Cincinnati Reds, but also one of the most famous and well-known and respected surgeons, especially when it comes to Tommy John surgery. We will get to him right around 1045. But every Wednesday, we're also joined by the Hall of Famer and my dad, Marty Brenneman. Look at this shot behind you right now. My, oh my, oh my. Where are you right now, Dad? That looks unbelievable. Well, let me tell you one thing. Had it not been for Amanda, you would not have gotten this shot. You would have gotten shot of a bunch of poles and, and just crap. But we have set this thing up. We've worked our butt off this morning to get this thing right. And thank God that she's able to do it so you guys can get a feel of the island of Bonaire in the Caribbean and check the water out. I mean, you've never seen anything more beautiful as far as this water is concerned. So you're down there on this Reds cruise. You've been going on that thing, what, 30, 35, 40 years, what? This is a 38. Unbelievable. And it used, to be, it used to be, Dad, in the old days, you got some of the current players. I don't know if you have any of them anymore. But you certainly get no. some of the former big-time stars of the Reds, and that continues now on this one, right? Well, big-time would be loosely put. Um, uh, we have uh, Jack Billingham with us. We have uh, Jim Maloney with us. We have one of the funniest human beings in the history of baseball or any other venue or occupation on earth, and that would be Dimitri Young. Yep. And uh, me. I'm the lesser of the evils. And uh, Joe Oliver, pardon me, Joe Oliver is a part of it. And uh, obviously Joe attracts a lot of interest because of his base hit in game two of the World Series in 1990 off Dennis Eckersley. And so it's been a nice group. We traveled to um, Aruba. We have traveled to Curacao and then here in Bonaire and then we're at Sea Four Days. So it's a pretty nice cruise. Well, that's really, really nice. Weather looks great. Water looks beautiful. You've got the uh, donning the, uh, what is that? That, that? that shirt, that's made by who? I've seen that logo before. What shirt? The one you have on right now. I mean, what, what would I be talking about? Some dude walking down by the, the lighthouse down there? 
Huh? Who would I be talking about? Some dude wearing a shirt in that lighthouse behind you down there? How can I? You want me to turn around and look? I'm going to let you see it. Wait no, I'm talking about your shirt. That's a big league shirt. Look at that. Here, here's a town now. I think Tracy's a bit jealous. That's big time. When you go down there, do people recognize Marty Brenneman like they do when you're walking around in Kroger and UDF and all that kind of thing? That would be a big old no. No. (laughs) That that would not happen. No. That would not happen. On the boat, I'm assuming, um, I I mentioned at the outset, uh, I have on my Ohio University green and white after just demolishing Miami of Ohio last night. Uh, some of my favorite moments with your longtime partner and our dear friend, Joe Nuxall, going back and forth with the old left-hander about Ohio University playing Miami and who would win the game. And it's become a regular occurrence that OU just dominates Miami. Yeah, well, you know what I find interesting about all that stuff you were talking about before you got me on? If Miami had reversed that score and won last night, that OU sweatshirt you got on would still be in the drawer at home. Well, so what? Front runner. Guys, have I been on the OU bandwagon all year long or not? Yeah, you have. I've been on the OU bandwagon all year long. When they went on the road and they played Penn State and they played Iowa State, all these big-time games getting ready for conference play, I said, just look out. When OU gets back in the What's back, your record? they are What's seven, your record? seven and three, won five in a row, sitting in first place in the Mid-American Conference. Was the game in Athens or in Oxford? It was in Oxford, and it it, it, it was just uh, just a a disaster for Miami. It's all you can say. Were you there? No, I was not. Uh, Paul Fritschner suggested we go up there uh, to the game last night. And you said no. Well, I couldn't. I had too much going on at home, and, and, and so, you know, that's okay. I'm going to get to a basketball game sometime this year. And um, can, I, I can, I address to... it, can I address this topic to Paul for a second? Of course. Sure. Paul, had you invited him to go see Ohio State in Oxford, he'd have been there. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling you're right on that one, Marty. Yep. <laughs> what did you think about TCU? Being ranked number four now. I think it's spectacular. I really do. I Obviously, they can't. They're in much the similar situation as UC was last year because I think the powers that be don't want schools like UC or uh, TCU or schools like that to be amongst the final four. So I don't think they can stub their toe between now and the end of the season. But if they were to run the table the rest of the season now, a very short season, uh, it would be off. You couldn't keep them out. They'd have to be in the final four. And I think what they've done behind that quarterback, Max Duggan, spectacular. And, and uh, they're, they're fun to watch, the team to watch play. They are. They're really fun to, to watch. Um, have you had a chance, and I don't know if you have or not, I, I would imagine the answer is yes. Have you had a chance to have any communication with Dusty Baker since winning the World Series? I just text him. That's all. I got. I text him, and he texts me back, and uh, that's been the extent of it. I didn't want to bother the heck out of him. In fact, I didn't even send him a text until two days after the World Series ended, uh, because I knew he'd been inundated, and he responded right back. And um, you know, I'm I'm still basking in his glory, as I think a lot of people are, um, over the fact that he won the thing. 
and won it convincingly after they trailed two games to one. Uh, there was no question who had the best baseball team once it does to settle in Houston. And um, I'm, I'm just, I couldn't be happier for anybody uh, outside of a relative that, to, for them to, him to have the success that he's had and his finally uh, uh, lit the candle on top of the cake once and for all. You know, um, I, I had some text communication with him uh, briefly yesterday. We're trying to get him to be part of the big interview. Um, and right. he said he would be happy to do it. But today, after yesterday, he had a meeting with the owner, uh, Jim Crane down there with the Astros, and the general manager. Uh, there was a lot of dissension. And, and, and exactly who it was between or among, I'm not sure any of us is exactly sure. But there seemed to be some things going on there uh, that would not be in concert with a team during the year that was dominant, first place in their division almost the entire year, uh, all of this taking place before the World Series. Do you think that he should, should, and I know that, you know, you're not going to make decisions for Dusty Baker, but do you think he should or will continue to manage? Well, the manager, the general, uh, the owner, Jim Crane, came out yesterday and said he's back next year. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, I got mixed emotions about that, Tom. He's been struggling like the Dickens to win a world championship, and he's done it. Um, I don't think anybody will ever throw any charity benefits for to raise funds for anything that Dusty Baker might need. I think he's extremely well off. Um, and if there was ever a scintilla of doubt, that he would be in the Hall of Fame. He, he put that to rest by winning a series. So I don't, you know, other than other than still ha still has a fire burning in his stomach to, okay, now I've finally gotten one. I want to go, you know, go try and win two. And let's face it, he's got a pretty good baseball team coming back next year. Yeah. It's not a case of, uh, you know, the personnel is going to change and you know what happens when that. Most of those people that were productive or were on that roster this year are going to be back next year. Um, I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's like Tom Brady, although Brady's situation is, is much more exaggerated given the fact he's won all the Super Bowls. But um, I'm sure there's something else that still drives Dusty Baker. And uh, that being the case, if he wants to come back, and I know he does, uh, then God bless him for it. Maybe make it back-to-back -back World Series wins. You know, you went through this of, and I used to have this conversation on a semi-regular basis with, with Harry Carey when I worked with Harry in Chicago. And, and every blue moon, the topic would come up about retiring. And he used to say all the time, he says, there's no way I retire. He says, there's no chance. It keeps me vibrant, keeps me young, keeps me alive, keeps me moving, all those sorts of things. You were still alive and vibrant and still moving and all those kinds of things. Um, you have been able to adjust to retirement very, very well. You know Dusty well. He's got a lot going on outside of baseball. But, but, but Dad, I got to tell you, I mean, what, what little I know of Dusty, he strikes me as the kind of guy, uh, and you mentioned he's going to be back next year, but he strikes me as the kind of guy with all the other things he has going on in his life that baseball is by far, and being a baseball manager, it is by far, outside of his family, the number one most important thing in his life? No question whatsoever. I mean, he owns a winery. Um, he has invested incredibly well. Um, 
like I said, he's taken care of his future. But I don't think there's any, whatever is second is such a distant second that you can't see it in terms of his passions outside of his family. Uh, and that's the reason why I said if, if it's important for him to be back, and I know he's still a vibrant, vivacious, energetic kind of guy, um, as long as he's got his health, and, 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 and this is something that really uh, has an overwhelming appeal for him to come back rather than walk away uh, with a world championship. I'm going to put the I'm going to roll the dice and try to do it again. I'm happy for him. I I think baseball is better off for having Dusty Baker involved in it. Um, and so I if he wants to come back, I'm good for that without any question whatsoever. Let's shift gears here a second to the Reds. And I know that you're not privy to all the inside information and everything going on down there and what they're going to do or not going to do. And we've said before here, you are still a member uh, of the Reds staff. And so, you know, we're not going to get into picking apart this, 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 or this. But, but knowing you have a stable of what appears to be really good young starting pitching, we saw a lot of that uh, this year, Lodolo, Hunter Green, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think I, – I wonder who they're going to put on the field besides Stevenson, India, Farmer, and Vado. Do you suspect that they go out and start making moves like the Tommy Fams of the world again, waiting on these young minor league players? Or do you think, you know, they're going to bring back some guys that played last year that were just okay, if not below okay at best? Well, I don't think they can um, – I, I agree with what you say about pitching. I, I think they just have to do some uh, adjustment as far as pitching is concerned. I think they're casting their lot – on the Hunter Greens and the Nick Lodolos and uh, the Graham Ashcrafts and, and maybe a guy like Connor Overton and some other people to give them a relatively solid rotation, albeit a young one. And I think that given the number of people they had uh, who were not available to them this past year, uh, you know, like uh, TJ Antone and, and, uh, and Lucas Sims and people yeah. like that, they were on the DL almost virtually the entire year. They've got some guys that can help that bullpen immediately and make it a much better bullpen, which is something I think they have to do. But having said that, and that's all about pitching, I don't see how they're going to score a whole lot of runs, to be honest with you, unless they go out and come up with something better than a Tommy Pham. Do I think they'll do that? I have my doubts because I still think that they're looking toward reducing the payroll even more in 2023 than they operated under in 2022. And I don't care how good your pitching is, and I and I bring up a prime example of that, and that was a Reds team that lost 100 games back in the early 80s. You go back and you look at that team's pitching staff, they had an ERA, I believe, of somewhere between 340 and 350. So their pitching was pretty good. They could not score runs, and they lost 100 games. 101 games, whatever it was. Uh, I think they have to uh, address the, the, the offense, and I think they have to do it with some faces that we're not familiar with because if they're going to continue to experiment, and I put that in quotes, uh, with people like Jose Barrero and, and uh, Aristides Aquino, I, I don't care how many home runs they hit. They hardly ever make contact, and their strikeout numbers are incredibly high. 
I just think, and don't don't discount the possibility now they couldn't trade Kyle Farmer because I think Kyle Farmer would have some appeal. And 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 I'm like I said, I still think they're going to lower their payroll even more than it was this year. And so I don't, I think they're in a heck of a quandary if if they're going to go out and try to produce a team that will show an improvement over this past season. And God knows it can't get any worse. I don't think then they've got to do something about their offense and how they're going to do that. I have no idea. We have a, an entire winter to talk about this, but it, but but I would imagine it, it, it's it's passed through your thoughts, uh, maybe not frequently, certainly not. But this is the final year of Joey Votto's contract, the ten-year deal he signed uh, for two hundred and fifty million dollars. I think it was. This is the final year of that deal. Now the Reds do have a, an option to pick up for the following year. There's no way they're going to pick up that option for that kind of money. I think we all agree on that. Um, one, do you think there should be, I'm not going to call it a goodbye tour because Votto has, has already said that after watching some other guys around the league, he thinks he can continue to play and wants to continue to play. He's got to come back from this very serious injury and he's rehabbing that no doubt 24 seven. That's who he's all about. But, but, but how do you think this season is going to play out? Not necessarily from a production standpoint, I'm talking about from a fan standpoint, an organization standpoint, an emotional standpoint for Joey Votto in 2023. Any guess on that? Well, I think I think from an emotional standpoint, you know, it's going to be a tough year for a lot of Reds fans who are died in the wool Joey Votto fans and have been forever. Um, I, uh, I I don't know. I you know he thinks he can come bounce back and and. Uh, attributes the year he had more or less to not one but two entries that have since been repaired and that he will bounce back and have a big year next year uh, um, and, but at the same time as long as he stays healthy and, and doesn't have to deal with the problems he had to deal with this past year he's going in that lineup every single day whether he's hitting 315 or he's hitting 215 it's not going to make any difference, and they're going to continue to hit him in a run-producing situation, and, 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 and that's the way it's going to be. And so I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, this is a guy who has tremendous confidence in himself and, and, and the ability, even at a rather advanced age for baseball players and being productive, to bounce back and have the kind of year that make people turn the clock back to years of, greater productivity that Joey Votto certainly has uh, can put his name next to. But I think there's a lot of things up in the air about Joey Votto. I, I cannot imagine, as you said, they've got a $7 million uh, buyout or, or whatever you want to call it at the end of this $25 million 2023 coming up. And they will certainly not, uh, I would not think, ex extend him with a contract beyond the end of the 2023 season. Um, I, I don't know. It's going to be a tough situation, but at the same time, I, I really truly believe, and I say this publicly, and I'm not ashamed of saying it, when people, you know, that, that are huge Joey Votto fans, so so great that they have no objectivity, and, and they talk about the Hall of Fame and, ballot, and first ballot Hall of Fame. Um, for one thing, I'm not certain, 100% certain, that he's a Hall of Fame player to begin with. I think he's had too many down years, but I'm, I would bet the ranch that he will not be a first ballot Hall of Fame. 
the one thing he's going to have going for him when those, that five-year period uh, goes away and he's eligible is he's going to have uh, the kind of numbers over a career that the analytic junkies uh, lose their minds gloriously over. You know, a lot of walks, uh, great on-base percentage, and, and I think that will enhance his chances of being in the Hall of Fame, and it will depend upon what kind of class that he has, the competition he would have if he has aspirations of being a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, the whole thing it creates a very interesting situation, but you can bet the ranch whether he's producing in 2023 on a daily basis or he's not producing. If he stays healthy, he's going to be at first base the entire season. All right. I, I, speaking of Hall of Fame, it's the last thing I'm going to ask you about because I, I am really scratching my head. I think it was John Heyman um, in New York who wrote this column a couple of days ago. I don't know if you saw it. But when they got down to the final eight or ten guys uh, on the Hall of Fame ballot this year, Rafael Palmero is on that list. Sammy Sosa right. is not on that list. Now, I only bring those two names up, and I'm just you know following Heyman's lead on this thing. No credit to me. Palmero was caught cheating. He lied to Congress. The list goes on and on and on and on. Okay, he had an incredible career. I mean, the guy had 500 home runs. He had over 3,000 hits, and there aren't a handful of those guys in the history of baseball. Great player. Sammy Sosa, while many people believe he may have been involved in, um, in uh, performance-enhancing drugs, uh, it's never been proven. There's never been a test that he's failed. None of those kinds of things. And there's no doubt his numbers warrant going to the Hall of Fame. How does that happen while Palmero is in and Sosa is out? I think it's strictly a, a, a personal feeling. It would be interesting for John Heyman to come back and write uh, an addendum to that piece and explain exactly the question you have because Paul is, is in, in, in John's mind among the top ten that I'm, I'm a son of a gun. Uh, then you tell me why Sammy Sosa isn't. Uh, I don't understand it, uh, but I will say that I don't know. You know, I'm firmly of the belief, Tom, that a lot of guys that are in the Baseball Writers Association allow their personal preferences to come into play. A guy may have made him mad or refused to do an interview at one time. So I don't care how good a career he is. I thought he was a jerk and I'm not going to put him on my ballot. And I believe that there are people around here like that. I truly do. Um, I don't know. It's hard to imagine. You're going you're gonna to put them all in. And if my memories serve me correctly, Bonds was there, Clemens was there, yep. uh, Paul Merrill, you mentioned, Sammy wasn't, um, uh, Kurt Schilling, for other reasons, was also on that list. Um, if you're going to have all those guys in and don't have Sammy Sosa in there, something's wrong. I'm mean, wrong. I don't understand that. I don't understand it either. Well, uh, what, what do you got planned today? Are you getting off the boat, or are you just sitting out there on the deck and enjoying the sunshine and a cocktail or two? Uh, what, what do you got going on? I'm gonna. We're gonna go out and walk the town a little bit. Uh, try to find a Christmas ornament because we have our tr Christmas tree is adorned with uh, Christmas ornaments of all the places we've been around the world, and uh, we're gonna do that. Then I don't know what we'll do. We might lay out on the deck, get a little bit more sun. I've got about as much as I can handle, but. We may do that and uh, read my book. And, uh, you know, it's been a very, very relaxing time, and we've had a wonderful time with our good friends Jack and Cheryl Matthews and, and Rusty and Renee Frankel and 
uh, all the players I told you about. We've had a good time. This is a great cruise. 38 years, already scheduled for one in 2023. And uh, hopefully it'll continue, thanks to uh, my good friend Herb Reisenfeld yep. and the folks at Providence Track. Yep. All right. Well, enjoy it. We are uh, jealous and envious, even though it's a beautiful sunny well, day I, here in I, Hamilton, Ohio. But uh, it, it ain't the Caribbean. The regret I have about this particular session is I've not had a chance to publicly say hello and how is my good friend Casey doing? I'm doing great, Marty. I'm doing really good. Um, I also, me and Paul wanted to show you something. I'm going to zoom oh, in yeah. here. Let me let me get my camera all set up here. All right, hang on. There we go. You see this? You see what those are, Dad? What, that uh, bobblehead? No, no, the, no, the, the, baseball the cards, the baseball cards. Oh, the baseball the card. You got, you got Tracy Jones there. Yep. Yeah, what do you think of those? What do you think of those cards? Well, it, it, it's it's weak is what it is. It's really weak. You know, he has a certain pallor about his skin that looks like they just dug him up. Um, but I want you guys, when, when you have him on again, uh, Thursday, right, Tom, or yep, today? Yep, yep, No, Thursday. Yep. I was watching, there's a, there is a documentary about Nolan Ryan on Netflix, which is a spectacular piece. And I say that in all seriousness. I always thought, you know, he was one of the great pictures of all time. But after watching this thing, you just scratch your head and, re, un, and have a hard time coming to grips with how a guy uh, can hold or at one time held 51 major league pitching records. Um, they have a lot of quick shots, cuts in that in that in that uh, documentary of doing what Nolan did best, and that's striking people out. Lo and behold, what pops up? But Casey, but but Tracy Jones standing there, striking out and looking like a washerwoman in the process. He <laughs> wanted to get out of that batter's butt. He swung at a pitch that he could not have hit with an ironing board that was up and away, and then. Almost fell down, but couldn't wait to get back to that dugout. I had to rewind it to make sure it was him, and it was. So just if you get a chance to remember, just run that by him a bit when you all have him on on Thursday. Well, fellas, what we're going to do is we're going to edit that clip right there by my dad. And before Tracy Jones comes on the air tomorrow, we will run that clip. Absolutely. All right. Well, now I'm trying to remember where it was exactly. I think it was well, more. Well, I'll tell you, he, he'll tell you that, that that may have happened. He'll admit that, but he'll tell you that, that, that I don't know if it was that game or not. But there was another game where he hit a rocket off Nolan Ryan, and he likes to talk about that. Well, okay, let him talk about that rocket, but also watch it look like uh, it was it was embarrassing. Is what it was. I mean, you can strike out with a, a, a tremendous amount of class and may, maintain. Uh, you know, your balance and, and look what the per swing is per picture perfect. You just couldn't catch up with a pitch. Not in this case. Now, you got to you all got to get that and then and run it by him on, uh, tomorrow. All right, fellas, we'll do that. We we'll can do, do that. All right. Dad, thanks for your time. Enjoy the rest of the trip. Be careful. Godspeed ahead. All right, pal. We love you and be give our best to Polly and Ella and Luke. We'll do it. We love you, too. Absolutely. Ella's on her all way right, to pal. Austin, Texas on Friday. For the big one down big in Austin, game. TCU v Texas one. Longhorns. We got some clowns on this chat room. Down. We got a lot of clowns, including my good friend <laughs> and yours, Sir Boy Wonder, 
who says, unfortunately, I I'm think sure. Texas wins this weekend. You used to be my friend, Sir Boy Wonder. You used to be my friend. Dad, have fun. <laughs> All right, pal. We love you. We love you, too. All right. Uh, coming up, we have my dad's good friend, another good friend, Dr. Timothy Kremchek. This is going to be an interesting interview, okay, because, you know, we're going to get into a lot of the stuff that, 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 that Kremchek has done through the years, some of the people he's operated on. Uh, he's one of the most well-known surgeons on the globe um, for repairing the, the Tommy John surgery you hear so much about. But but one of the things that he is, has been a real crusader for uh, is the abuse by coaches all the way down at the knothole level through high school and college of young pitchers' arms, kids. Uh, so for some of you out there who maybe have a, a son or a daughter or maybe a nephew or a niece or a grandkid uh, who's playing Little League Baseball, uh, I think you're going to find some of his thoughts on this quite interesting because he is sought after all over the country uh, by people uh, and his thoughts on, you know, how much do you pitch guys? There's a great debate. You know, you talk to some of the old school guys and they'll say you build the arm up by throwing more. Some of the new age stuff in the analytics, we saw it even at the major league level a couple of years ago in the World Series. You're taking pitchers out of starting that are dominating a game. Kevin Cash did it with Tampa Bay two years ago. They take a guy out of a game who's right around the 100 pitch mark, and the Dodgers can't touch him. And the second he comes out of the game, that's all she wrote, Dodgers win. So a lot to talk about with Dr. Timothy Kremchek. He is the big interview, and it's coming up right around the corner on Off the Bench. Our main man, Zim Hude. I mean, he got all kinds of pub again, all kinds of views on uh, social media coming after our boss yesterday if you weren't with us. I mean, he was all over Trace Fowler yesterday. He's scared of him. Yeah, he kind of beat them into submission. He, Trace jumped in the, the, the Twitter discussion yesterday, and he got all over him. He did? He did, yeah. What, what was this on Zim's show with Ace Boogie? No, no. Winsinati so, is that the name of it? Winsinati. Yeah, Winsinati. Yeah. No, this was like a Twitter space discussion. He does that like every day. He goes into like a Twitter space and talks to like fifty to hundred people on Twitter, and they all just discuss Bengals content and whatnot. But Trace got in there and he he, he uh, ripped him another new one. So did he really? He did. Wow. And what was Zim's reaction? Did he come back after him? Or, or, I mean, I saw where Trace posted that, that clip we had yesterday where he was talking about Trace, called him the Grim Reaper. Yeah, I mean, Trace just went right into that Twitter space and just knocked down the hopes and dreams of every Bengals fan that was in there. <laughs> it was a rough scene. It was. He, it was a murder scene, honestly. Beat us down in here. Browns just – that Browns week. What a, what a weird word. And there's another one, one coming. I know there is. I know there is, Tom. Next time, uh, you know, the Brownies come here. and um, It's all right. They stay. You know, it, it, Joe Burrow will still be looking for his first career victory. Brownies fans love talking about that. I mean, they may not have much else to talk about, uh, although I still think they're, they're going to have a decent year. But uh, they, they, they love that whole thing. What do you got, Casey? Nothing. nothing. Oh. We got nothing. Uh, my favorite three broadcasters. This is from Casey. 
it looks like on uh, in the chat. Well, there's some. Uh, it, it looks like is that Japanese? Is that Korean? What is that? I I don't know. Uh, I I don't know. My favorite three broadcaster sports show hosts of all time in no particular order: Mike Francesa, Tom Brenneman, and Colin Cowherd. Wow. There you go. Wow. I'd love for our show to get as popular as those two guys. They got it going on. Yeah. Colin Cowherd's on Fox every day, radio all across the country, television. Mike Francesca, uh, he, he was legendary in New York City. Uh, he was with the Mad Dog, who, by the way, uh, we're going to have on one of these days, the Mad Dog, Chris Russo, uh, on the big interview. I like that guy. I've done him a lot of uh, favors through the years. He owes me a couple. <laughs> uh, and, and we are working on the next couple of weeks – um, we told you that Dusty Baker uh, has agreed to come on the program. We just got to nail down which Wednesday it's going to be. Hopefully, it's this coming Wednesday, but we'll keep you posted and let you know. And then I had contact yesterday, and I owe him a phone call back this morning with recent inductee to the Basketball Hall of Fame, former UC legendary coach, now West Virginia, Bob Huggins. Oh, Huggy Bear. Well, let's get him on the week before he's here. He's, he'll be in town. What is the date of that? In two weeks. Uh, it's the week after Thanksgiving. That would be a perfect week to do Huggy Bear. Yep. Perfect. And that week of the Ohio State-Michigan game, which is in two weeks, um, I spent a little time with Urban Meyer over the weekend, and uh, he is going to come on and be the big interview on that Wednesday before Ohio State v. Michigan. How big will that game be? Uh, that'll I be. mean, in the, in the history of that game, and I know there's some Ohio State or Michigan fan out there that will say, well, what about in, you know, fill in the blank? And, and they'd be right. But I'm not so sure there's more on the line than the game if both of them win the next two weeks, which they should. Um, how big that game is going to be in Columbus. Yeah, what one of those games can you think of off the top of your head that would be bigger than this one? Well, I'll tell you, the one two years ago when I was there, uh, when um, Urban ran it up, or it was three or four years ago, uh, they, were, they were in the top, both of them in the top five, um, and Urban ran it up on them, was trying to score 70 against Michigan, 70. And were it not for a player getting injured on that last drive when they had the ball at about the eight-yard line, they would have scored 70 against Michigan. But it's a little bit different Michigan team now. All right. Uh, it's time to get started because he's checking in from his palatial estate uh, at Beacon Orthopedics. We'll have him lined up here in a moment. But we mentioned our big interview today is Dr. Timothy Kremchek, one of the most well-known and respected surgeons uh, in the United States. Yes, he's operated on the likes of Ken Griffey Jr. and Barry Larkin, but most of his work over the last 35 years has been done on people just like you and me. He operated on one of my knees a number of years ago. He started and owns Beacon Orthopedics in his hometown of Cincinnati, where his father, Edward, was also a renowned, a renowned doctor. He was recently named as one of the top 10 doctors in Major League Baseball, but is considered to be one of the two or three top surgeons in the sport, especially when a pitcher needs Tommy John surgery. Kremchek served a fellowship under Dr. James Andrews, who certainly helped his rise in the field. 
For those in Cincinnati, his generosity in the community and his commitment to young people is really unmatched anywhere. Every Friday night, every Friday night for 35 years, you'll see him walking up and down the sidelines of a local high school football game or on a Tuesday night at a girls' soccer game. That's been going on for decades. He and his wife, Hillary, recently donated the brand-new baseball field at famed Cincinnati Moeller High School where he and his father have served as the school's team doctors going all the way back to the 1960s. We mentioned a moment ago, he's also been on a crusade to save the arms of young pitchers, your sons, your daughters, your grandsons, your granddaughters. And his views are certainly sought out by medical experts and baseball coaches all over the country. And for a little fun, he's also medically served Rock and rollers like the Rolling Stones and Kiss. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But Dr. Kremchek, good morning. Hope you're doing well today. Uh, Have you been in surgery or just seeing patients today? What do you have going on? Just seeing patients today. Today's one of my lighter days. Yesterday was a surgery day. How How many surgeries would you do in one day like yesterday? Yesterday. Yesterday, I think I did 14. And but those typically, are a little bit of everything? Uh, a little bit of everything? Yeah, ACLs, uh, we call ladder J's, big open shoulder procedures, uh, Tommy John's, rotator cuff repairs, you know, kind of a the gamut. All right, I'm going to ask you, I assume he's got his audio on his computer, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so if you can hit that mute button, then that way we don't hear my voice over and over. It makes enough people sick as it is. <laughs> yep. Um, I mentioned when you were growing up, and I think a lot of us, I certainly uh, assume this, that you were a lifelong born and raised Cincinnati. And we mentioned your father, a doctor growing up, but your first baseball experience actually came in Boston, right? My father was at Westover Air Force Base. We lived in Chicopee, Massachusetts, and I was a diehard Red Sox fan. We're talking about 1967 when the Red Sox went to the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals, Bob Gibson. I can tell you the entire lineup for both teams, for uh, St. Louis and, 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 and Boston. Big, huge Red Sox fan. Loved Carl Yastrzemski, Tony Canigliaro, Kenda Hawk Harrelson. I used to go to bed at night listening to uh, uh, my radio with one of those little white uh, earphones and, and put it underneath my pillow. So absolutely. And I mean, it. I started with baseball that way until we moved to Cincinnati in 1968 when my father went into practice. And the first thing he did was an 805 Reds Cardinals, Bob Gibson on the mound against Jerry Arrigo and the Cincinnati Reds at Crossley Field <laughs> on, on a bobblehead night. By the way, it was a bobblehead night. Come on. They had bobbleheads in the 1960s? Well, no, no, no. This was the late 60s, and it was a Cincinnati Reds, Mr. Red bobblehead. Gotcha. Okay. So it wasn't okay. a, yeah. And so, but yeah, I mean, this 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 went all the way, and that's when I started. I played baseball back then as, as, a, as a five-year-old, loved the game. Uh, actually loved the Red Sox. I mean, I'll never forget uh, going. My father, when I was nine years old, took it was a two-hour drive to Fenway Park. And after the game, we went down behind Fenway Park, and where the players would come out, Jim Lomborg and all these guys were coming out. All I wanted was an autograph. Well, my father, I couldn't get them. It was packed. And my father wrote a letter to Mr. Yockey at the time. It said, my nine-year-old son, it's his birthday, and, and nothing. So all of a sudden, a few weeks later, there's this ball that's signed by every member of the, of the Boston Red Sox. 
it was actually my father who signed it. I just had no idea the signature was the same. The names are just different. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, you, you moved to Cincinnati. You talked about your dad, uh, a, a real uh, pioneer in sports uh, medicine and sports procedures. Uh, he, he gets involved with Moeller High School. And at that time, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's right around the time when Jerry Faust is the head football coach at Moeller. Do you remember meeting him, being around him, any of that kind of thing growing up? Guys. Yeah, there's a guy named Hank Sanciola, who was a primary care doctor, whose sons ended up going to Moeller High School, and he would take care of them uh, probably, it started in the late 60s. Well, back then, sports medicine was in infancy. And they didn't have orthopedists that took care of teams, but my father loved it. I mean, he, I mean, he got to meet Jerry. Jerry was so engaging, so into this. The Moeller program was, you know, eight years into its uh, the beginnings, and Jerry Faust was just a huge part of my my growing up. Uh, Jerry, <laughs> Jerry, and my father became very, very good friends. I mean, it's every Saturday morning during the football season, the phone would ring around 7, 7.30. That's when we had phones, not cell phones. And it was Jerry on the phone with that raspy voice going, Doug, I got these players. And he'd bring them over to the house around nine o'clock. There'd be about eight of them. And these guys were man mountains standing there. And, you know, Jerry just wanted to make sure that they were going to be okay, what they needed to do so they could play and, and move on. And I mean, it was the beginning of a relationship that uh, all of us wish we have with our high schools and our programs of trust and getting these kids back and doing things for the right reason. But, oh, yeah, Jerry Faust is a huge personality. Not to get ahead of myself here, but when Jerry was given a job or got the job to go to Notre Dame, he wanted to take my father with him to be the, the doctor at Notre Dame. No kidding. Did your dad yeah. think about did your dad that? think about that? He did. I mean, what a great honor, but us being in school and, and – you know, I have three brothers uh, were growing up here. Probably wasn't the right thing to do for the family. And in retrospect, it certainly wasn't the right thing to do. So thinking of us, but, you know, he loved Moeller football. It was back then. It was Princeton Moeller. Uh, these games were incredible. Uh, even though I didn't go to Moeller, I went to Indian Hill. <laughs> i never forget when I was a freshman, uh, my dad said, Jerry wants you to come up to practice and because he wanted me to go to Moeller. I mean, if I went to Moeller, things would have been a lot simpler. Just and the access, everything. So I go up there and I'll never forget. There's old Tim Cagle, Bob Craven. I guess it was a sophomore. Bob Craven was a freshman. Uh, Big Jim Brown, the offensive line, a guy named Paul Messong. I'm looking at these guys saying, it's, I might be on the team, but there is not a chance I'm going to make it through practice. And so I, I stayed at Indian Hill and played. And I think it was better for my health. Let's just put it that way. You were a very good baseball player. And you decide to go play at Wittenberg. H had you already decided, maybe long before you went to college, that you were going to follow in your father's footsteps? You know, all of us, everybody, you ask any kid now, and I ask all these kids when they come to my office, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they all want to be, the little guys, they all want to be baseball players, football players, basketball players. That's what I wanted to do. I loved baseball. I loved the game. I mean, I was a huge, you know, when we moved to Cincinnati, huge Cincinnati Reds fan. Uh, you know, all of the players, you know, Bench, Rose, Morgan, Perez, uh, all of these guys. I mean, I watched every game on TV, used to go to a ton of games. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, you, you, you go to school like Indian Hill and you're pretty good. 
And I ended up going to Wittenberg and getting to play relatively early. But I, I recognized pretty soon after that that uh, that was going to be the end of my baseball career. And I had to do something else. I, quite honestly, I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And uh, my father said, why don't you come and my grades weren't the greatest my first year. He said, why don't you come and work with me uh, over Christmas break? And I did. And I spent six weeks. I'd go to the operating room, see patients. I saw how he did what he did, why he did what he did. And after that day, I said, I want to be a sports doctor. That's what I want to be. Uh, I didn't know what kind. I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I wanted to be a sports doctor. I wanted to be involved with sports, involved with the team, be a part of everything that, that they did. And it wasn't until I got to Boston, which really turned my life around uh, as far as what I want to do, how I wanted to do it, who I met. And uh, it, after that, it was just it's just, it's just been a whirlwind. Up in Boston. Well, I was a fourth year medical student. I got into medical school, knew this is what I wanted to do. And I did a rotation at the New England Baptist Hospital, which was a uh, affiliate of Harvard. Well, obviously that was in off Parker Hill Avenue and it was about three miles from Fenway Park. But one of the reasons I wanted to go there because I, I was thinking of doing my residency there. And so on a Saturday, the nighttime, I would go down to the ballpark. Well, one night I was, this is 1985, uh, July of 85, I spent a month. And I'm standing down where the players go in and this lady with gray hair and dark glasses said to me, you look like you're lost, you have a ticket. I mean, I was in a polo shirt, blue jeans, you know, I looked like a regular guy. And it was Mrs. Yockey. And she took me up to her box and we sat up there and watched the game. And the next night she invited me again. She asked me what I wanted to do. She, downstairs, she met me, there was a guy named, I think Lou Gorman was his name. He was the general manager, introduced me to him. And that was the year, and, and they, they were really getting into sports medicine. I said, this is what I want to do. I want to take care of a baseball team, not the Red Sox. I want to take care of the Reds. And so I did my residency there, and I used to ride my bicycle to Fenway Park to watch the players come in. And there was a guy named Roger Clemens that was a pitcher for the Red Sox, and he was getting his shoulder arthroscope by some guy named Jim Andrews. And I said, who's he? And I researched him and said, I'm going to finish here. And I'm going to go and spend a year in Alabama and learn how to take care of baseball players from this guy. Because this guy was, you know, an up-and-coming guy in 1989. And I said, that's what I want to do. And after that, I stalked him, spent a year with him. He taught me everything I wanted to, to learn about baseball. And I said, I want to be him. That was my next question for you that I had written down here, uh, James Andrews. He, he's become, certainly in the medical field, the sports medical field especially, um, a, a household name. Uh, maybe after Dr. Frank Job, he's become the next guy, and then you would be the next guy after that. I, I think when, you know, if there's such a thing as an arms race, uh, no pun intended, uh, if a pitcher has to have Tommy John surgery, they're talking to you and they're talking to James Andrews. Um, what what is it about him or any doctor, Tim, that 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 separates them from the pack, especially when it comes to a procedure like Tommy John? Well, you know that's a great question because you know when you're in the medical field, everybody you want to think everybody's top notch and everybody can do a great job. I think the difference is in what he taught me. And I, my father taught me in retrospect a little bit of this too, but what Jim Andrews, who I think is a second father, by the way, he taught me the art of sports medicine. And I, I say this to my fellows all the time. It's not about what you do, it's how you do it. And you have to respect the player. 
and respect what he's doing, respect why he wants wants to do it, whatever level that may be. And, and, and once you understand that and you've got that connection, then that gives you a step up of everybody, uh, upon everybody else. I mean, a lot of docs stop playing. If it hurts, don't do it. Just quit. Don't play that sport anymore. Understanding what makes these kids and what makes them tick. And once you do that, you can hone in on some of these procedures that may be a little more difficult for some to do. Then you become good at it. You become their advocate. And you become a player's advocate because deep down, that's what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to be a player. All of us have some competitive athletic uh, approach to life. And so to be part of all this and work and get down the, the roller coaster with them, I don't care if it's a high school football player, I don't care if it's Tommy John, I don't care if it's a, you know, a, a college basketball player, it doesn't matter. As long as you understand and appreciate where they're coming from, you've got a connection with them that most docs don't. Jim Andrews taught me that. I, he, he had the most unbelievable approach to people I mean, he was a Southern guy. I was uh, from training in Boston. I was a Yankee. And he'd come in with these with these players. How you doing, big man? How y'all doing? And they'd say, we were just in there with this Yankee here. And he goes, ah, he's all right. He's only here for a year. I'm teaching him. We go back up north when we're done. <laughs> yeah, I've had a chance to meet him. He, he, he's, a, he's a piece of work. I don't know him well, but he, he's a piece of work. When, when you, you were in your early 30s, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, when you became uh, the top medical guy, medical director uh, of the Cincinnati Reds, how did that happen? You know, it's funny. When I started practice, uh, I came back up from Birmingham and I started taking care of the Cincinnati Cyclone hockey team. And they had an affiliate in Birmingham, the Birmingham Bulls. But the Cincinnati Cyclone hockey team back then, they were at the Gardens. They were selling 11,000 a night. Games were sold out. I mean, it was the ticket in town. And I was able to work and become the doctor for that team. Well, what happened was, is that a sports, what I learned in Birmingham was the approach. I didn't learn this in Boston. Boston was staunch, Harvard, white coat, they didn't get it. But in Birmingham, they understood how to take care of athletes. Well, the word got around how I took care of the hockey team. I'd go to practice every now and then, take care of the players. And right about then, the Reds were in this metamorphosis and uh, Jim Bowden was the general manager. And he called me on the phone and he said, uh, you trained with Jim Andrews and you love baseball. I want to talk to you. And I spent three hours in December of 1996, actually yeah, early December. And he asked me what you want to do. And I said, my dream job is to take care of the Cincinnati Reds. I said, I'll come to spring training. I'll come to every game. I'll show you how it's done. He didn't believe me, but he said, you're on, you're hired. And uh, from 1996 and until now that's what i've been doing so uh it, it was an unbelievable interview and i know jim's got his uh, uh fans and people that don't like him very much but he was very fair to me but i think what he was trying to do was find a connection to the team and i'll tell you the guy that was my biggest advocate back then was barry larkin and barry larkin wanted health care for the team he wanted the players to be taken care of he wanted them to be prioritized and um I, I got the job in 96 and we went down to Plant City, uh, Florida. It was our first spring, my first spring training, the last one for the Reds in Plant City. And I was scared to death. And uh, the first guy that came up to me was the reigning MVP of 1996 was Barry Larkin in front of the whole group. Gave me a big hug and said, I'm glad you're here. That was it. Walk us through. Uh, I've seen it in person we're going to get to this tommy john stuff in a few minutes but 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 walk us through what you and your staff do 
and how it's evolved certainly over the years. But, I mean, now when you're the medical director of a professional sports team and baseball, which has you know dozens of minor league teams, you have hundreds of minor league players, you ultimately, at least from a macro standpoint, at the very start of spring training, have to go in there and look at these guys and check them out. So when you get, when you get to Goodyear, Arizona now, you and your staff, tell us what that's like hitting the ground running. Well, first of all, you don't want to hit blind. You've got to you've got to go down to spring training and know exactly what you're getting into, what players are coming, what problems they've had, who's going to be valuable to the team and who isn't, who are fillers for the minor leagues. I mean, these are all things that you've got to be able to communicate really months ahead of time and look at their records and find out kind of where they're going to shake out. Then once you've got a list of the you know the top 35 guys, maybe 40. And then you've got your prospects that you'll know that'll be in the minor leagues, but but have to be healthy. Then you've got to you've got to set up your team to be able to do cursory examinations and then specific examinations on specific body parts. And so it takes a, a fair amount of time to look, for example, the pitcher's shoulder, his elbow, get the right questions asked, go back and look at old MRIs, old surgical procedures, surgical notes, whether it's been how much time they've been on the disabled list. Because at the end of the day. You have to be able to sit down with the organization and say, this guy is going to last. This guy is not going to pitch 200 innings. This guy is not going to be a reliever. This guy is going to break down. And this is uh, somebody that we're not going to be able to rely on. Or this is the guy we need to develop his arm strength, shut him down uh, if we got him from a trade uh, first half of the year, and he'll be available for us for the second half. So there's a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of questions. It's a lot of stress because, you know, the front office is asking – their jobs depend on them getting the right answers and putting the right players out there to perform with the right program for, for now and for the future. So it's it's a lot of work. You got that job as medical director of the Reds and and, and you're continuing to build your quote unquote resume and reputation as a, as a surgeon. Um, is there one guy, Tim, that puts you kind of on the map of a surgery you did? Uh, it could be a pitcher, it could be a position player, I don't know. That, that all of a sudden, by word of mouth or whatever it might be, that all of a sudden let people out there know just beyond Cincinnati or the Cincinnati Reds that if you've got a problem, this is a guy you might want to come see. The, the agents are the ones that – the players, but also the agents are the ones that send you a lot of business. And so years ago, the Levinsons, who were with Aces, would send me all of their players. And I, I, I go back 25 years with you know Detroit Tigers, Oakland A's, you know, I think Barry Lark and Kevin Mitchell helped Paul, um, our, our, um, our first baseman, was um, 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 uh, planking on his name now, um, uh, on the World Series team. All these, Brett Boone, these are all guys that I took care of when I first started and, and who were very receptive to my care. But the guy that probably put me on the map, the guy that put me on the map nationally was Ken Griffey Jr. And I never forget when Jr. came, I was sitting in the OR and I heard that we're going to sign him and Mr. Linder drove him to the press conference and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to be a circus. This guy's going to be untouchable. But Junior Griffey and I bonded from day one. And I'll never forget this. Never. So one, he's an icon, obviously. Not only in Cincinnati, but across the country. So he's in San Francisco and he goes to catch a fly ball and he injures his hamstring. Okay, trainers are calling me. We're rehabbing his hamstring. It's a couple weeks later. I'm driving in my car, and it's Junior calling. 
And he said, my hamstring is not better. I think I need an MRI. And I said, Junior, we don't MRI hamstrings. We don't do any. We don't operate on them. But I said, you're Junior. We're going to get an MRI. So we get an MRI. And the hamstring is pulled completely off the bone and its hip. It's like, wow. It's completely torn. Well, I have never fixed one of those. And so I looked it up and did my research. And I sent him down with a trainer to the head uh, of sports medicine at University of uh, North Carolina. And he had done a number of these on the women's soccer players and fixed them. So Junior goes down. And the next day, I'm sitting in my office. I get a knock on the door. It's Junior. He goes, the doctor said I need it fixed. When are we doing it? I said, what you, uh, I, I haven't done it. He goes, I trust you. I want you to do this. That was 48 hours of advanced studying for me. <laughs> and so I fixed his hamstring. And after that, uh, it was all he came back and won comeback player of the year the next year. Everybody in the world knew he had it fixed. Uh, it was all over the papers back then, all over everything. And so I think if one guy put me on a map, it was Ken Griffey Jr. And, and, kind of and, funny. And again, isn't that, isn't that yeah. funny that, that a hamstring injury uh, and a hamstring repair would be the one that put you on the map? Not, I mean, like I said, I mean, you, you, you know, you, you fixed Ken Griffey Jr.'s hamstring, you fixed Tom Brenneman's knee, you, you fixed Joe Blow's elbow. But, but, but you become more known as the years go by as a Tommy John guy. I find it so interesting that it's a hamstring that really puts you on the map. You know, it is interesting, but nobody wanted to fix that. It was a unique injury in a, in a megastar, a guy who's an all-century player who decided to, amongst anybody in the world to go to, to stay with me. And he came back and he did well. And so all of the things that you've learned, the things that Jim Andrews taught me how to do with Tommy Johns, then all of a sudden the players start looking at you differently. And so, oh my gosh, I mean, I get down the list of, of guys that we started that would, one of my big, the, the pride of taking, the hard part about taking care of a professional team, there's a lot of agents and a lot of people that hang around these players. Well, you've got to develop that trust. And if they trust you, the players will want to stay. It's easier. The families are here. You know, everything is in, in town. If they don't trust you, they leave. And, and sometimes they don't have a choice. The agents push them wherever they want to go. But for a long period of time here, I was the go-to guy, not only for our players, but for a lot of players around the league. And it seems like every year there's more and more and more. And, and, and in pitchers, the Tommy John happens to be the, you know, the, the, the buzzword. Everybody wants to learn what it is, how to do it, how do they come back. Now it's the revision Tommy Johns. And so I would see knee injuries, ACLs, all that kind of stuff. But the thing that got the fame and the, and the, and the newspaper articles and the reports were the Tommy John. And, and, and then I've done an awful lot of those. Is there pressure or do you feel pressure even now? I'm sure the Ken Griffey Jr. thing, there's no doubt what the answer would be yes. But is there, do you feel pressure when you're operating on a big-time athlete whose career is in the balance, perhaps, depending on his recovery, him or her, uh, from a surgery, and everybody knows you're the guy doing the surgery? Yes, uh, and, and it gets worse because the more you're known, orthopedics is a very cutthroat. Everybody wants, everybody wants to do what I do. Nobody wants, not a lot of people want to put in the time and the effort to do what I do. And so you take a lot of pride in it. A lot of things can go wrong. You need an awful lot of people around you to support what you do, whether it be anesthesia, nurses, assistants, you know, people that work in the office. I think it's, uh, the more you think about those things, yes, it it, there's a lot of pressure because everybody wants to shoot you down. Everybody wants to see you fail. Everybody wants to see 
uh, you know, then jump in front of you. And so that's what motivates me, though. It's, and, and again, I think when you take care of a sports team, you take care of athletes, it's your athletic the, the competitor of you that comes out. You want to be involved with teams that win. You want to be involved, win or lose, with them as part of the team. And you want to be part of the success stories that gets people back out there playing and watch them play. I don't care if it's Clevenger or Bassett or Souza or uh, Nick Senzel or Joey Votto, whoever it is. Uh, you watch them. You want to see them succeed because part of you is going through that athletic competition with them. It's 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 your way of playing and competing when you can't do it anymore. Um, but I know you feel that way because, again, I, I'm, I'm a living example of this. It, it's not only the, the surgery itself and the surgery being successful. It also takes then follow-up care uh, and for the individual, whether it's somebody like me or somebody that plays high school soccer or uh, Ken Griffey Jr., um, the follow-up, uh, and I tell people all the time because I've had – surgery on both knees and I'm not an athlete in any form or fashion but the follow-up work is what separates and, and I'm asking you this is a question it seems to me that the commitment now becomes on that person because you're going to give them the chance to rehab everything uh, and, and again it doesn't matter whether you're the high school athlete or you're a Ken Griffey Jr. at Beacon you're going to give them a chance to rehab it but you better show up and you better be committed to it because it seems to me that's just as important as the surgery itself. Is that fair? fair? Absolutely. And, you know, where a lot of people, I think where a lot of people fail is not understanding that it's not just about me. It's about it's about your team. It, it's no different. My team here is no different than any other sports team. I mean, Tom Brady doesn't win without his offensive line, his tailbacks, and his receivers. I don't win without my assistants, my physical therapists, my athletic trainers, the people in the OR. And so you have to develop a team of people that understand what it takes to get to get somebody to that next level. I don't care if you're doing a knee replacement on somebody. You don't treat them like they're old. You treat them like they want to get back to the activity that they want to do. Um, and you have to have that mindset and you have to develop that culture. And the culture that we developed here is for these athletes to get them back on the field to play. I don't, again, I don't care what gender, age, level, sport, it doesn't matter whatever they want to do. And once you can develop that culture and have the people around you understand that culture, the immediacy to get an MRI, to understand a diagnosis, to get the treatment, to get the rehab, and then functionally get them safely back on the field, communicating with the coaches and oftentimes the coaches in college that they're going to go, it's going that extra mile and it's being a part of their injury, their program, their progress, and their success. And if you can do that, this isn't a job. This is something you do and you just enjoy every day. And I love every second of it. And I think if you understand that, that's what separates some from others uh, in this field. It's not just about doing arthroscopic surgery or Tommy John. It's about understanding and, and just totally devoting yourself uh, to the people that come in to see you. And, and sometimes that detracts from your family life. It's some of the other stuff you want to do for fun. But it, uh, it makes your career awfully, uh, uh, to me, rewarding. You have taken it upon yourself uh, or perhaps prodded by, by all the patients you see. And I mentioned at the outset that of the overwhelming majority, uh, probably 90-something percent, uh, are the surgeries. You said you did 14 yesterday. Uh, you know, maybe none of them plays professional sports. Um, young pitchers growing up. 
teenagers pitching in knot hole, high school pitchers, college pitchers. You've become quite the um, leader in the way you feel about how these young men and or women, maybe in softball, I don't know, maybe the throwing underneath is not as devastating to the arm as coming from over the top. Um, but, but you've become a, a real advocate for trying to educate people on how much these young people should be used or not be used. Um, what's been the reception out there? Because let's face it, I don't care if you're a high school team, a college team, pro team, you're trying to win. And you want your best guys out there. Yes. And, and again, I understand that and I appreciate that. And I think that if I have a, an audience, it's going to be for the overhead thrower because that's just kind of what I do, the pitching, the throwing, the baseball. But I like to take this to the level of not just baseball, but I'm talking about youth sports in general. One of my big criticisms is how not necessarily competitive, but cutthroat. And I think that it, it, it for the reasons to just win, we are putting aside some of the safety factors of our youngsters, whether it be young women soccer players, uh, whether it be the types of fields we play on, whether it be baseball players and how types of pitches they throw, how often they throw. We have to be advocates to safely get them to play. And what has turned me off on a lot of these competitive uh, leagues, sports, is the, is the all-out effort to win at the expense of some of these kids' safety. And, and, and to the forefront of it comes the Tommy John surgery and throwing breaking balls, for example, kids that are 12 years old. And we've known forever, and this is where it started, we've known forever that the younger you are and how you start to throw curveballs throws a lot of stress on your shoulder and in, in particular your elbow. And we've seen research, we've watched it, we know that you've got to grip the ball a different way, you've got to learn to throw it the right way, and if you don't, you have a real chance of, of causing damage to yourself a couple of years down the road. Well, when all that literature started being developed for Little League Baseball, the Little League World Series and Little League Baseball is so political that they threw it away and tried to justify that throwing curveballs cannot be proven to cause injury when you're 12 because of the sensationalism, the TV, ESPN, Little League World Series, and I became then a staunch, I'm going, against, I'm going against, I don't care what you guys say. And I took a lot of backlash for that. Uh, no different than the same backlash I'm taking now, but I'm talking about field turf. I know field turf causes injury. I know it causes more injury than natural turf. And the NFL wants to sit and they want to deny that. They want to deny that those, 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 those studies exist, and they do. And it's not just for the NFL. We're talking about now going down to the high school level, the women's soccer levels, we're talking about baseball. So I want to be able to get the word out how we can play these sports safer, how these kids can move on. You asked me, taking care of professional athletes is one thing. The most important thing and the hardest thing I do is take care of these young kids that want to go on to play ball in college and, they, and they're playing in high school. I have, my goal is to get them ready so they can go enjoy college. Some of them can't afford college unless they do play a sport. Some of them, that's who they are. That, that's going to develop them as people. And so it, the, the Reds and professional athletes are one thing, but the hardest job I have is these young kids so I can keep them on the, the straight and narrow, staying you know, with the right people, doing the right thing. It's going to develop them for the rest of their lives. So, yeah, I've taken a lot of criticism. I've been beat up a lot uh, because of this, but I'll stand strong. I don't care. And most of the reception is quite good. 
until it gets down to the bottom line. And the problem are some of the coaches and some of the leagues. The parents have been unbelievable. There's a very dangerous narrative out there, Tim, with younger players and pitchers about being proactive in regard to having Tommy John. How frequently are you dealing with that? In other words, getting a Tommy John, because so many guys are coming back stronger, throwing harder after a Tommy John surgery. So getting it done before you even get hurt. You know, that's I've, I've been asked a number of times by coaches, parents, I've been asked by two general managers in professional baseball uh, to do that. Uh, one of them was a Dominican player that threw hard. and They knew they were going to blow out his elbow, so let's just fix it. And absolutely 100% of the time is no. And again, one of our jobs is educating. People hurt themselves because of fatigue, technique, uh, many, many reasons. But you, but the reason, and, and again, guys like me want to sit back and take credit for somebody having a Tommy John and then becoming a National League Player of the Year. It has nothing to do with me. You fix the elbow, but it's the rehabilitative program, the strengthening of the core, the shoulder, the long toss program, the time and effort that's going to make them better, stronger pitchers. And I tell them that all the time. It has nothing to do with what I do. It has everything to do with what they do. And most of these young kids, have, and, and you see, see it all the time, they jump out of their parents' car, they go play. They don't warm up. They don't long toss. They don't do anything. Now, all of a sudden, they played for 15 years. They've never taken any time off of baseball. We operate on them. They're going to miss 9 to 12 months. And that whole time, they're building their body up, their core, their shoulder. So, of course, they come back and they throw harder. So that's the message we need. We need to educate people. Our goal and my job, as much as it's a surgeon and operating and standing on the sidelines, whatever it might be, is to educate and mostly to educate the kids, the coaches, and their parents. Um, um Walk me through, Tim, where it became in vogue. And I don't know if you're a proponent of this or not. Based on everything you just said, uh, uh, it would be easy to assume which side you would come down on. But look, you and I are old enough to remember, and I was broadcasting not all that long ago, where guys like Greg Maddox and Kurt Schilling and Randy Johnson and Roger Clemens, and I could go on and on and on. You'd have 25 or 30 guys in each league that are throwing 250 innings, if their teams make it to the postseason, they're throwing 300 innings. You're lucky to find two or three guys in each league now that even get to 200 innings in a season. Where did, what prompted this, I'm going to call it babying. Maybe you want to yell and scream at me for using that word. Where did we start babying pitchers? And I, and I use the Kevin Cash uh, thing from the World Series a couple of years ago. You got a dominant starter. You're playing in the World Series. This is Major League Baseball, man. This isn't some high school regional game. And you're taking a guy out of a game because he's got 100 pitches? Where did that all start? A, a lot. For, first of all, number one, we do know that injury comes from fatigue. And, and when you talk about injuries in baseball players, you talk about stressful innings and non-stressful innings. And that's why closers break down, I think, a lot faster than starters and, and middle relievers. Uh, but it all started, I mean, if you go back to when I was telling you about the 60s, you talk about the 69 Mets, they had four pitchers. All these guys had four, four pitching rotations. The problem came with the agents, the money, uh, and the longevity of these players and, and, and how in their minds they can protect their arms. I think a lot of these guys, and Jack McKeon taught me this many years ago, are not throwing enough. 
And if they are, they're not thrown properly enough. We know that long tossing and building your arm strength can help can it can help you, you know, stay pitching longer. But I think a lot of this are the people that are surrounding these players. The money is big. The TV money is big. Uh, and in their minds, they're trying to do and save their commodity uh, by limiting the amount they pitch. And sometimes I think they hurt the players. And there's a lot of players, or some I should say, that feel that going back to a four-man rotation in baseball is a better thing. They throw every fourth day. They're going to do better. And, and we've watched the Jim Maloney's grow up, throw 200 pitches in a game, pitch forever. We, we watched Nolan Ryan forever. You know, Jerry Kuzman. I can go through the, like you can, the entire list of guys that were throwing 200 innings and not even thinking about it. And now we've got all, it's like prize fighters. you got everybody standing in a way trying to protect their players so they can play longer and make more money. And it's all about money. That's what it is. And I think I, we see a shift in that coming where, 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 I know there was some talk when Nolan Ryan got back involved with the Rangers that they were going to start to do this kind of thing. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I was doing some work in the Pioneer League this year. And I mean, you know, there are guys down there. Now, they're not affiliated teams anymore. But there are guys down there throwing 115, 120, 125 pitches in a game. And you sit there and you say to yourself, huh, I wonder if that would happen if these were still affiliated players with affiliated teams. The answer is, of course not. Do you think that we will start to see a shift or are we seeing a shift to getting guys throwing more pitches in games or innings in a season? I think in general, yes, but I think that, again, I think, and I've watched this happen over the last 25 years, there's too much interference in professional baseball. Too many people that are calling the shots, the agents are calling the shots. It's just the way it is. Where the players go, how much they play, and don't get me wrong, I have tremendous relationships with many of these agents and, and that are doing things for the right reasons, but their job is to protect their players and get them to play as long as they can. And so. They jump in on all sorts of things, and, and the team has to listen because they're afraid that they'll lose the player. There's just too many outs for these players, so I don't think that's going to happen at the major league level, and I think it's a shame. But there are a ton, and I am one of them. I think that the players and the pitchers, they ought to throw more. They ought to throw more effectively and longer. You're right. A pitcher throws six innings. It's, they consider themselves a complete game now. You, know, you go back 15, 20 years ago, you had to pitch nine innings to, to, you know, really, wow, that's that's really something. How many? I, I'd be curious to know how many guys threw nine innings in the major leagues this year. Not many. Um, before we have a little fun here, um, I, I, I want to ask you this. Why has there been, because you and I both know, you've forgotten more than I know about it, but every time I open a newspaper or read on the internet where a pitcher has a shoulder injury as opposed to an elbow injury, and all of a sudden you go, oh boy, th this is, this is going to be rough. Why has there not been as much success? And it's not to say you can't have a successful shoulder surgery and come back and pitch. But why has there not been as much success on the shoulders as there has been on the elbow? <laughs> The re there's just too much involved with the, with the shoulder. You've got to have you've got to have enough motion in your shoulder to throw hard, but enough stability so it's not unstable. You've got to develop all the musculature around it. There's 22 muscles around the shoulder, and it's extremely difficult. I think one of the biggest problems we've ever, and, and again I've lived through this and I've gone through this circle, is the MRI, because too many people are treating it. everybody gets an MRI. I mean, it's amazing 
how naive people are in baseball, but they think every time you have an injury, you need an MRI, and they treat an MRI. You treat an MRI, you're over-treating people. And so when I started, we weren't doing a ton of MRIs on shoulders because we knew there wasn't much we could do surgically to help them, and a lot of these players were coming back. Then all of a sudden, the agents and everybody got involved, they got MRIs, show partial rotator cuff tears, label tear, whatever it might be, and before you know it, you're operating on them. And then you're operating on them, and the rehab was so... We don't even know if that was the real problem, and these guys would have a hard time coming back. And so now we're to the position where most of the time, unless you absolutely 100% know that this is the problem, this will fix it, you don't operate on a thrower's shoulder. Whereas 20 years ago, we were, we were scoping everything and trying to fix everything, and we've learned that you can't do that now. I mean, the thrower's shoulder is supposed to look like this after so many innings. You can rehab it and come back and play but don't go jump to operating on it. And that's what experience will tell you. I see these young guys that come out, take, they start taking care of these professional teams or get, they're sending me MRIs and they say, we're going to fix this guy's rotator cuff. And I look up and say, you're crazy. I mean, this guy's not going to come back. And the last thing you want to do as a surgeon taking care of a team is be the last guy to operate on that player. That's the last thing you want. All right, let's have a little fun here. I mentioned earlier that uh, that somehow, some way, uh, you're down there at Riverfront Coliseum, the old Riverfront Coliseum, uh, when all these rock and rollers are coming into town through the years. I mean, you, uh, it, it, the pictures around your office of the guys that you've been around is just unbelievable. The, the one that I find most fascinating, and, and, and please share the story, is, is when you had to come down and check out Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and the Rolling Stones one night. What was that like? First of all, let me tell you, again, I love the competitiveness. And when I came back to town, you try to find an angle. And so I said, you know, I want to come down to the Coliseum and I'll take care of all the acts that come down. And nobody was doing that. Nobody wanted to go down and they didn't. But I thought it was fun. And so I got to meet everybody. This was way before things changed in, in medicine and HIPAA and all that kind of thing. I was down there two hours before concerts. Um, and I was meeting everybody. So I'm, I'm operating at the Good Samaritan Hospital. And the Rolling Stones were coming to town for the Voodoo Lounge Tour. And they were playing the Riverfront Stadium. Well, granted, most of the time you see these acts. And you're seeing somebody who's on the, you know, making the stage. And they break their thumb with a hammer or something. So I'm up there and they said, we need you to come down to the stadium to, to see somebody with the Rolling Stones Tour. And I said, okay. And they said, well, we need an ear, nose, and throat doctor to come with you. And I said, Okay. And so I found my, my, my buddy and we drove down. And so we drive down to Riverfront Stadium and every going underneath the bowels. And then all of a sudden, all, it's all draped out in black and there's pinball machines. And we go into this little room and there's this little old guy sitting in the corner. It was Mick Jagger. And I went and sat right next to him and he's talking to him about his throat. And I'm looking at IENT guy going, this is out of my league. And so he looks at me and goes, go get some hot water and some this and this and this. And I go get it. And we sit in there taking care of Mick Jagger, just talking to him. And Mick Jagger looks at me and he says, uh, would you like to have dinner with us? And I said, are you kidding me? So we go out into a table and I'm sitting here, Mick Jagger sitting next to me. Then all of a sudden, here comes Keith Richards. The whole band is sitting at this, this table of, for four. There's six of us. All they wanted to know about was ACL injuries and soccer players. And all I wanted to know about was him and David Bowie and all these things I read in the newspaper. Bianca Jagger. He was awesome. He was awesome. 
and he said, uh, "Can I pay you for this?" And I said, "How about a how about an autograph program?" He had all the guys personally sign an autograph, and I still have it. And it was fantastic. I mean, he gave me tickets to sit behind stage and watch the concert, watch these guys uh, during. And, you know, quite honestly, they're just regular guys. I mean, he was just sitting there. He was just a regular guy. Wanted to know what I did all day. All I cared about is what he did. And, you know, I got to meet Reba McIntyre, uh, Alan Jackson. You know, I remember Ozzy Osbourne told me to F off because I asked him if he's going to bite a bat's hat off. I was having dinner one night down and there's this guy sitting across from me and he was in a painter's uh, you know, overalls. And I'm, I'm sitting here for 20 minutes having dinner. I finally said, what do you do? And he goes, I play in a band. I said, who are you? He goes, my name's Eric Clapton. I said, oh, <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> Did you meet the band Kiss? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Kiss, Kiss. Kiss was down there, uh, and those guys were nuts. I mean, they were absolutely nuts, and they're running around with their moon boots on. They're, and, and they're, and, but I was just one of the guys. I had been down there when Kiss was down there. I was down there two hours before, so I saw them out of makeup. I saw them just hanging out, running around, doing their thing. So I was just part of the gig. So they didn't care um, what I did, uh, and so that's how you got into. You got to really see what was happening. I remember Fleetwood Mac uh, came with they had renovated the Coliseum and I got locked in the dressing room with Stevie Nicks and she went berserk because she couldn't get out. It was locked on the way in and she would, she had a major meltdown. I mean, the wrestlers that would come were incredible. I'll never forget uh, one of the wrestlers named Ivory uh, was a woman wrestler, cut her eye. And I, I was down underneath. I was going to sew her up and here comes Ric Flair busting through the door saying, wait a second, who are you? I said, Oh, I'm uh, going to, so we're up and he goes, let me get my plastic surgeon from Columbia University on the phone. I'm thinking it's nine o'clock on Thursday night. Good luck. Uh, here comes McMahon's daughter. Finally, I ended up sewing up Ivory and Ivory said, what do you need? She signed a picture to me. And that's the same time when Cold Stone was there. So Cold Stone broke a beer can over his head, split it 12 stitches. And I got a picture of him too, you know, hell yeah, doc, 15 stitches or whatever. I mean, it's just, the again, it's about building relationships. And, it, you know, I was just one of the guys. It was fun. That's cool. Tim, we thank you for your uh, time today. Uh, it's always great seeing you. Please tell your bride and, and all the kids that we said hello. And, and thanks so much. And thanks so much for your support of, uh, of high school athletics right here on Chatterbox Sports. You've been a big part of our base and our future. And, and we thank you for everything. Well, I appreciate what you do, and, and, and again, the, the guys at Chatterbox have been fantastic, and what you guys are building here around is going to be replicated around the country. And It just shows how important and how exciting and how, uh, you know, high school sports is a big part of our communities, all of our communities, and here uh, high school football, soccer, and it's just fun to be part of it, and, and I'm glad that I'm, I'm, I'm able to do so, and I'm glad that you guys include us in those things. So thanks, thanks for having me. This is great. All right. Dr. Timothy Kremchak. Have a great day, young man. Great to have him. Boy, that's some interesting stuff on there, man. Interesting stuff. And he's on his game uh, and has been for a long, long time. Back with more on Off the Bench presented by United Dairy Farmers right after this. All right. Uh, th there is something right about the college football playoff rankings. And we're going to be talking a lot about this because we're down to the final three Saturdays of the regular season. Teams play... Uh, 12 regular season games now, and virtually every conference has a conference championship team. So um, you're going to play 13 games. 
before you get to a college football playoff. So we have three more weeks, technically two more weeks of the regular season, three more weeks of the regular season while they're released the rankings. Then you'll have that following Saturday of conference championship games. And after those are over, you get the big show on a Sunday uh, instead of a Tuesday to tell you what four teams will play in the college football playoff. 2026 is when we go uh, to 12 teams. And, and there are some very interesting articles that are written out there today. Um, and the one I talk about all the time, I, listen, I, you know, I'm paying for it just like you would pay for it. So I, I'm not on any kind of retainer with these guys. But uh, if, if you love sports, and it's a couple bucks, three bucks what it is a month, I think it is, the athletic. Yeah, I subscribe to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, it, it's basically what they did, if you haven't heard of it. It's theathletic.com. And, again, I'm not, I'm not, you know, indebted to anybody here. But if you love sports, what they basically did was they went out and, and tried to hire some of the top sports writers in the country from cities everywhere, young guys, older guys, columnists, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, they, they have no limitations on space. They have uh, no deadline. So if there's a game that ends at 1130 at night and the reporter who covered the game for Ohio State uh, wants to write, you know, a 40-paragraph column on the game, the good, bad, and indifferent, they're able to do it. Um, and, and so you really get very, very in-depth coverage uh, at both the college, the pro level, nationally, locally, internationally. They've got it all. And it, the point I'm making is, is that, you know, they do the what if game. So what if we had 12 teams now? So you've got these rankings up here, right? We do. Yes. Okay, so let's just start with the top four. Casey, Paul, do either one of you have any problem with the top four, whether it be the four that are in there, somebody that's not, or the order of the top four? Um, I personally right now don't have a problem with it just because uh, Michigan and, and Ohio State are going to play each other and one of those is going to be out eventually. I like where TCU is at. I think that's fair. Um, they have not lost a game. I'm looking forward to them playing Texas. I think that will determine whether or not they continue to stay in the play college football playoffs. Um, I think no matter what, they stay at four, um, regardless of what happens um, from here on out. The only way that they move up is if, I would say, like, Oregon and Tennessee lose. I think Oregon or Tennessee will probably take the third spot when it comes down, when, when, when everything um, comes to a close in the end. Well, what are your thoughts, Paul? I, I do tend to agree with that only because if Georgia stays number one, I don't think they would want to do the SEC rematch right away in the first round. They'd right. probably want that for the title game. So I do agree that TCU at four is probably the right spot. I like this top four. I was a little nervous that Tennessee was going to stay in there at number four uh, just because you had number three beating number one. You had two ranked teams in the top four playing each other, and the number one team loses. I thought maybe they would just drop to four. Uh, I like the top four. I think that's. I think that's right. I think it's the right order. I don't think there's any real objection to it. What happens in the next three weeks? 
especially when you start getting into one-loss teams. Because let's face it, as you look at it, I want to put that, I'm going to keep that up for a minute, okay? Because yeah. we know that, you know, barring some disaster, Georgia will be undefeated going into the SEC championship game. So the way it stands right now, if LSU were to win out, LSU would play with two losses. LSU would play Georgia in the SEC championship game. I mentioned earlier, there has never been, since the advent of the college football playoff in 2014, when Ohio State won the whole thing, the first one, um, there's never been a two-loss team in the college football playoff. But if LSU were to beat Alabama, which they already have, Ole Miss, which they already have, these are top 10 teams now, top 11 teams, Ole Miss 11, and then beat Georgia in the SEC championship game, you talk about unmitigated chaos. I mean, the way this thing steps up, let's put the, the rankings back up there again. Yep. Because, okay, that's one scenario, okay? You mentioned Casey, Tennessee. They've only lost one. What if they went out? Yeah, they went out, but they wouldn't play in the conference championship game. But they would have one loss. The Oregon SC thing is going to play itself out. Because Oregon... And SC, each with one loss, one of those two teams, maybe UCLA, but one of those teams is going to win the Pac-12 championship and more than likely walks in there, now they're at one loss. Yeah. What if TCU loses a game? They're at one loss. But let's say they go on and win the Big 12 championship game. They'd roll in 12-1. and one. Ohio State and Michigan, they play each other in three weeks. One of them will win, one will not. But the one that does not win has one loss. Now, most people feel like Ohio State would have a better chance with one loss to get into the college football playoff than Michigan because of the schedule. Now, that's what most people think. I'm not so sure I'm buying into that because I don't think either one of their schedules was particularly good. But Ohio State continues to look better and better as Notre Dame continues to win games. Because Notre Dame's now ranked 20th. So, you know, and, 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 and let's face it, and they also have beaten Penn State. Penn State is the only decent win that Michigan has because their out-of-conference schedule might have been the worst out-of-conference schedule in the country. If Michigan loses a game, they are done. D-U-N, done. They will not be in the playoff. But, fellas, if you have, let's say, Georgia and Ohio State, let's say they go undefeated, Okay. If you then have Michigan, TCU, Tennessee, Oregon, all with one loss, which two are in, which two are out? Say that again. Okay. Let, let, let's say the top two stay unbeat. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That means Michigan will have lost to Ohio State. Yeah. TCU uh, if they lost to Texas this weekend, Texas is ranked 18. One loss, TCU is out. One loss, TCU is out. For sure. For sure. One loss, TCU is out. TCU has to be undefeated. Right, hold on a minute now. Hold on before let, – let's, let's stop there a second. Okay. If Michigan loses to Ohio State, the only team they beat in that top 25 all year long was Penn State. Put that list back up there again, okay? 
Now, what if TCU beats Texas? Okay, who's ranked 18th? That means this year on that list we're looking at right now, they will have beaten Texas. They will have beaten Kansas State. They will have beaten Kansas, who's just outside this 25. They would have beaten Oklahoma State, who was in it most of the year. All of those wins against teams with winning records, three or few losses for each of those teams. And you're telling me that if TCU loses one game, that they would for sure drop out and Michigan with one loss would not drop out for sure? Oregon would. Oregon would be in if they are. Went out. If they went out. Okay. It, a one-loss Oregon and a one-loss TCU, they're going to give it to Oregon. Okay, what about – Okay. I think I'm with you on your point. I'm just sort of putting myself in okay. the mind of the committee. What about Tennessee? They went out, but they don't play in the SEC championship game. TCU loses a game, but wins a Big 12 championship game. So each of them would be – TCU would technically be 12-1. and one. Tennessee would be 11-1 and one because they're not going to play in a conference championship game. Well, who does TCU lose to, though? Are you saying if they lose this weekend to Texas? Because if they lose – I'm uh, just saying if they lose a game, but then they come back and win the Big 12 conference championship. Uh, I, I, I mean, if, if TCU loses to, like, Iowa State in their last game, I think they can only afford to lose to Texas and even have a shot. They can't lose to Baylor. They can't lose to Iowa State and still have a shot. I really think TCU, just the way that this is setting up, has to end up undefeated, but maybe maybe a one loss to Texas in a Big 12 championship, but I, I still think TCU has to end undefeated because I, I think that they're going to give a Pac-12 champion Oregon. That's just the way it's setting up. Tennessee, maybe, but I, I think they want to give a Pac-12 champion a shot here. And then LSU, too, a two-loss LSU team. If you're looking at, at Vegas right now, you can bet on who's going to make the playoffs. And uh, Tennessee has the third best odds at minus 240. Third best odds. Well, who does Georgia to, play the rest to, of this to year? Make, Pull up to their make schedule. The playoffs. Who are they playing they, the rest of this year? Georgia. They play Kentucky. Yeah. What? They play Kentucky. Who's ranked 24th? Georgia Tech and Mississippi State. They, they don't have a very tough schedule the rest of the way. Okay, so they play one ranked team, and they play a mediocre team in Mississippi State, yeah. and then they play a way below average team in Georgia Tech. I will put it this way, too, from Vegas' side, and this goes back to where I say I'm just kind of putting my mind in the my, my head in the mind of the committee. Clemson and LSU and USC and Oregon and UCLA, all of those teams I just mentioned have better odds to make the playoffs than TCU. Okay. So I'm just saying that, that I think TCU, the way that that's shaping up with the odds and everything else, I think that's trying to tell you that a one-loss team, one-loss TCU isn't going to make it, even though with all those ranked wins. Well, look, as you look at that list, I mean, that, to me, that, that makes logical sense, even though I want TCU to get in there. Yeah. But when you look at that, um, Oregon has already bludgeoned UCLA. They've already killed them. Okay, you have three Pac-12 teams in the top 12. Okay, so USC, Oregon, UCLA all sit at one loss. You're going to have to beat to be the Big 12 champ. 
you're going to have to beat one or two of those teams. We know UCLA and USC will play one another the final game of the regular season. So that'll take care of that, okay? Then you have what's going to be the Pac-12 championship game, which could involve the winner of UCLA-USC getting another crack at Oregon. So I can understand why uh, a Pac-12 champ based on who you'd have to play and beat, would have a better chance than the Big 12 champ. That I understand. I just think when, when you start looking at Tennessee, the potential of LSU, these Pac-12 teams, and then, of course, the loser of the Michigan-Ohio State game, uh, and the chaos it would be created if LSU were to beat Georgia would be insanity. Because wouldn't they have to go? A two-loss LSU team that has beaten Alabama and beaten Georgia? Has to go. They got to be. No in. brainer. They got to be. They got to go. They got to go. SEC is the best conference, without a doubt. And I think some of the teams in the SEC are overrated every single year. I mean, I get so tired of reading about Ole Miss and Mississippi State and you know, I mean, it, it gets tiresome because these teams are really not very good uh, at the end of the day. But top to bottom, solid conference, top to bottom. I think Big 12 is better this year, not the heavyweights, but the middle and the bottom tier. Casey. I just happened to take a look at both USC and Oregon's schedule. Yep. And there, there's going to be a Pac-12 team in the championship. Or there's going to be a Pac-12 team in the playoffs unless Oregon loses to Utah, which is that that's, could happen. That, that's a big, that's could a big possibility or USC loses to UCLA, which could happen. Now, if either one of those teams went out and they make it to the championship and they win their championship, they're in, they're in for sure because they, they play you USC plays UCLA, which is nine and they play Notre Dame, which is 20. We already talked about how Notre Dame has been. Where is that Notre Dame game? Uh, SC? at USC. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. So they got some tough games, USC. Yeah, and uh, again, Oregon, they're right there. They, they play Washington, which is ranked 24th this week. They play Utah after that. And then they play Oregon State, which, um, you know, that, that's, that's not probably, an easy schedule. That's not easy. Not an easy schedule at all. Washington on any given day. They got the Penix Jr. kid, the former Indiana quarterback who's out there having a good year. They're ranked 25th in the current poll. So that's not a layup. Yeah. I So after looking at this one more time, I'm just going to put it up. I think if Oregon or USC win out, they're in. They're they're in the, the, the football play. They're in the, they're in the playoffs if they win out, um, for sure. There's not a scenario to me where if Tennessee wins out and Oregon wins out that Tennessee's in and Oregon's out um, just based off of the, the schedule that they're about to play. Um, TCU, to me, like they cannot afford to lose any games at all, um, which is unfortunate because, you know, this is if they lose against Texas, which is a really good team, um, they, they, they're pretty much out. And I think Texas, to me, like they kind of got screwed by having an injury early on against Alabama. Yeah. I think they'd be right in the middle of this uh, conversation that we're having, honestly. I don't know. I, I think they're soft, but that's my <laughs> Texas. I think they're soft. Texas. 
think they're soft. They have been soft for a long, long time. They're soft. Not back? Not back yet? They have a chance to get back. You know, get the Manning kid coming in next year, but I think this is one going to be one of the most fascinating stories to watch in football because of the transfer portal and all this kind of stuff. If Quinn Ewers gets on some kind of a run here, and that's the guy you were talking about, the quarterback, transfer yeah. from Ohio State, right, who started against Alabama first game of the year, just shreds the Crimson Tide uh, in the first quarter, then gets hurt. Misses the next number of weeks. They lose uh, a game. He had a terrible game against Oklahoma State right after he came back. They lost that game. They played a little better lately. Uh, but he is a more than capable quarterback. But, but, but if all of a sudden he ends the season on a big-time run, you're going to hand that job to Manning next year, and yours would only be a sophomore uh, from an eligibility standpoint, be a junior uh, from a, a pro standpoint. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch. There's some good games this weekend. Uh, who, who did you say that SC and um, SC, UCLA, and Oregon played this weekend? So, so USC plays Colorado. That's a blowout. That, this week. And then they play the following week, UCLA. Okay. And then they play Notre Dame okay. to finish up their schedule. Okay. Oregon, they play Washington. This week. This week. Where's that game? It is in Oregon. Okay. They'll win. Yeah, and then they play Utah, which is also at Oregon. So they, to me, have the most likely chance okay. to, to, to get in. And then USC, man, they're, they're playing UCLA and then Notre Dame. That's tough to me. That, that's tougher than what Oregon's about to do. So I don't know. I, I, I really do think, though, a Pac-12 team's getting in. I think you're, we, well, it all depends on how they, it shakes it. Yeah, you're right. If they went out, yeah. if one of those three wins out, there's no doubt they're going to get in. And I can promise you that the powers that be in college football would love to see that be the Trojans because they are the brand, right? <laughs> Oregon's run by Nike, but USC is the brand. They say it doesn't matter. These are human beings that sit around and talk about this stuff and they're looking for big cash when that college football playoff goes to 12 teams. Huge cash. You just heard Timothy Krimchak say a little while ago, don't believe for a second. We all know the old adage about money talks and BS walks. Cash. It's having a lot to say in the world of athletics these days. I just can't believe Ohio University is not on that list. <laughs> After a drubbing of Miami last night. Um, okay, what's our cherry on top presented by United Dairy Farmers today, fellas? Uh, do we have one? We do, and this is a great story. Uh, you may remember Domitop Pecco, the, the Bengals player from a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, his Good dude. His father-in-law sold the winning $2 billion Powerball ticket. You know what? I just heard this guy interviewed on the radio driving in this morning. Yeah, he owns the store where the ticket was bought in California, and he'll get a $1 million cut of yeah. that. And he, they asked him the question, what are you going to do with the $1 million? He says, I have 11 grandchildren. He says, and I'm spreading that money out to 11 grandchildren. That's awesome. Yeah. Great story. The winner of that, by the way, was a two, you, you see it up there, $2 billion. They have IRS agents banging on their door. And you know what? One of the silliest things in the world I heard about this story today and explain to me the benefit of this. And maybe there is one. It is, it is mandated by law in California 
that the person who won that Powerball, $2 billion, their name has to be made public. Yeah, that's not in every state. Every state has its own lottery law as to whether you have to come forward or stay anonymous. Ohio, you can stay anonymous. You're trying to win it in Ohio. What? I don't know. Maybe it's transparency. Transparency for what? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the IRS know who's the guy is. That's all the government cares about. They just want the cash. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Good Lord. And in California, by the way, before we leave, they voted down because the Indian reservation tribes, yeah. right, threw all of their money, despite the fact that they could have been helped by sports betting, yep. right? Yep. They threw all the money behind fighting the DraftKings and the FanDuel's of the world, yep. being able to use an app to sports gamble in California. So in other words, you can walk down the street in San Francisco, you can walk down the street in LA, and it's cool to shoot heroin. It's cool to crap on the street, but you can't have sports gambling. Yeah, but I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah, both the propositions got shot down yesterday, and honestly, they never even stood a chance. I think they only got 15%. Think about that for a second. They are giving away needles to shoot heroin in California, and you cannot make a sports wager on your phone in California. What in the hell is going on? Priorities, man. Priorities. Gentlemen, we shift gears and lighten the mood a little bit. Can Am you, I right or wrong on that? Box you, lunchtime coming up. I mean, can, can you please explain that to me? Can Anybody you, that's been to California lately, you literally can run, go out for a morning jog and go in seven different directions through some of the nicest neighborhoods in the world. And my heart bleeds for these people. I'm not some guy that's all of a sudden thinking I'm better or looking down. People have problems. I get it. But you can run in any direction and find somebody handing out needles to shoot heroin in California right on the street where your kid gets off the bus. And you can't sports gamble in California. Did you say you could crap on the street? You can't. They, do, they don't do anything about it. Of course they do. It's everywhere. I literally, the last time I was That's in San freedom. Francisco, I got up in the morning. I tell this story all the time. I got up in the morning to go take a run. And I'm going down Market Street in downtown San Francisco at like 6.30 in the morning because I woke up early with a time difference and all that stuff. I'm literally dodging piles of human feces and used needles trying to get to the Embarcadero just to, to, to get out of the chaos. That is, that is a true story. That's freedom. You can't do that, that argument, That's fine. <laughs> but what about the freedom of being able to gamble on a college yeah. football game on your phone? Yeah. That's Seems like ridiculous. a double standard to me. It's ridiculous. It, 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 it's, it's insanity. I need to stop gambling against your Ohio Bobcats. They keep. Please keep, don't tell me you bet against them. I bet team. against them. I Why was in loving, the world would you do that? Seriously. Well, love and They're honor. the best team in the conference. The, the cradle of coaches, Co or Tom. You got to have players. Coach. You got to have. I like that coach in Miami. I think they've got some nice pieces there. They got they got some nice defenders. He's brought in some transfer guys. I watched that game last night. But 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 OU and I don't say it because I, OU is good. 
Yeah. I mean, they got a big, rugged, physical, tough offensive line. They got the best player in the conference in the quarterback. 24 touchdowns, four interceptions. They ran for 200. They're averaging like 40-something a game. They've won five in a row. They, they're good. I've been to four different home football fields in the MAC, and no one does it better than OU. There's no doubt. No one does it better. Well, I mean, you know, look, I, I argue all the time, and again, not because I'm an OU guy, but, but I take the kid, and I don't know if he has family ties there. I don't know who recruited him or didn't recruit him, and OU's probably to blame for this. Mm -hmm. But how in the world that C.J. Hester kid from Wyoming, mm -hmm. okay, he's going to be the Mr. Football for a second year in a row, yeah. Division More than four, whatever it is. Yeah. How in the world that guy is playing at any other Mac school besides Ohio University is beyond me. They have the best facilities. They have the best stadium. You talk, I ran into a guy the other night who played college baseball. He was telling me the greatest stop by far every year was that baseball field at Ohio University. Their gym is incredible. I don't understand how every kid out of this Cincinnati area that may not be able to play for Ohio State or Notre Dame or whoever, I don't understand how in the world they're not playing in Athens. I, Athens is a great place. Great you, place. you mentioned the baseball field. Two best baseball players to ever play at that baseball field. Mike Schmidt and Trace Fowler, who played for the Southern Ohio Copperheads in the summer. The Cheds. Trace was a ball player. Do you know that? I know he was. I know he was. I was in Athens in the summer uh, for quite some time, and they gave us uh, two things I remember about Athens. One was they – uh, Three things I remember. <laughs> You can't crap in the street in Athens. No, you, no, cannot. you cannot. No, you cannot. No. One is they serve puke. they serve they serve <laughs> beer. They serve beer at our at, at the games. Yeah, that's great. Was, which which made for fun atmosphere at times. Right. The second thing was is that uh, they gave us a Wendy's card. We got like five or six free dollars on it every day. Now this was back before inflation, so you got a lot of food for yeah. five dollars. Yeah, burger was ninety nine cents or something. Right. It was like you know you could get a dollar menu. Items. Yeah. yeah we were joking the other day about how we're gonna have to tell our kids about how there used to be a dollar menu. You could actually go somewhere and get things for a dollar. That's that's beside the point. The last thing was, and this is the thing that probably is most ingrained in my memory, is I would go fishing from time to time at some state park. Yeah. And Stroud I, State Park. Perhaps that was it. Yeah. And uh, there was one night where I just kind of got lost in time. And the next thing you know, I looked around and it was pitch black outside. And I, honest to this day, don't know if I've ever been more scared for my life. It was just like this weird thing like, I probably need to get the hell out of here. And I picked up my tackle box and I sprinted as fast as I could to my car for about probably a half of a mile. And I don't know what, but it just You could have stayed me. out there for months in Athens. Probably. Nobody would have bothered you. But, I, but, but something, it was just a weird aroma that came around me like, why – in the hell am I still out here? It gets dark there. <laughs> there was no lights no, anywhere. No, 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 It was no. about as dark as it gets could dark. possibly be. So what's on the show today, boys? What do we got going on? Well, we liked your conversation with, with, with Krimchek. Uh, Reed's been on this 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 banter or warpath. I'm not sure what the correct term would be. Warpath. Um, warpath's probably the stronger, more appropriate term about youth sports and um, kids throwing curveballs. Yep. So we'll, we'll, we'll have a small conversation about that. Um, but I think, you know, for the most part, I don't have too many, too many things that you said today that I have a problem with. I think the college football playoff situation, we talk about that later. It is cut and dry this year. I think it's pretty cut and dry. I had, I had to field a lot of questions, Tom, 
about what it was like working. I went to career day today at my alma mater, Baden High School. Very nice. Who you used to pick against all the time last year right. in game day show. They but, were booing me the second I walked in. They I said, know that. Here comes this son of a gun. And I was like, yeah, whatever. But they, a lot of questions like, how's it working with Tom? It's, it's like, he's great. It's great. There were a lot of questions about you. How to feel a lot. I'm sure. I'm sure. We, uh, we have some important business here to, to take care of before we get this the box lunch started. We're gonna we're gonna pick Casey's college basketball fandom live. Mm. With, we're gonna do it live with the wheel. The wheel. Okay. The wheel. We're gonna leave we it. Trust. How how are we doing this? I never was told. So we we took out the Pac-12. We don't want to make Casey stay up too late at night. Sure. We gave him the five other major conferences, and we took out the Blue Bloods. Oh, this is for who he's gonna root for in basketball. Yes. Okay. Yes. This is okay. his college basketball fandom. Right. We took out the local teams, right? Yep. And we took out uh, the Blue Bloods, except for North Carolina, because he wanted to potentially leave North Carolina in there for Marty. Okay. Is this reverse raffle or? Was yeah. This so we're gonna we're gonna spin the wheel, and then as I like this, as it comes out, we're going to remove a conference, and then and then we'll go from there, and then we'll right. we'll paste in the we're pasting the teams. All right, spin the wheel, Casey. Tom, this is how we choose lunch every day. Yeah, this I wheel, like this. This wheel right here. Uh oh. Ooh. Oh, he's going oh, to the no. Big East. Big East is. Or wait, no, no. Big East is out, out then. Oh, well, Xavier was already 10? out. What's the oh. Big Ten? Oh, Big Ten. Big wow. East is still in. All right, remove it. Remove it. You can't uh, take the Buckeyes, Casey. Uh oh. You didn't want to, anyways. Uh oh. <laughs> Hold on. Oh, God. There oh. we go. All right. There we go. Spinning again. Up and spinning. Big East is out. There we go. There we go. I TCU's, I couldn't, TCU's I, looking better and better, Case. I can't wait for this. Poor, I can't this deal poor, if he this was a poor, This poor fan. kid's going to have to root for, like, South Carolina. <laughs> oh, I mean, God. how terrible would that be? All right. Ready? Crowder? Get the Big 12. Get Huggy. Get Huggy. He could. Yeah. yeah, he could. All right, here we go. He comes here we go. to Centos this year, and he'll be going he to does. third That's going right. forward. He's coming on the big interview soon. Uh-oh, Big 12. Bye-bye, Huggy. Huggy. Oh, oh, oh. Bye-bye, Kansas. Bye-bye, TCU. This is getting bad. For this me. is oh, gonna. He's gonna be in a SEC. Missouri. 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 How about Kentucky? He could be a Kentucky. Well, no, Kentucky's no out. No blue bloods. No, wait, no, wait a second. Hold on. Does he get to at least oh, pick the right. team? Kentucky's out. So does he get? If we're down to these final two, does that mean he get whichever one is left? Does he get to pick the school inside of that conference? We were going to spin the wheel for the, the – yeah. we, we got to spin it again. Wow. We got to do, okay. ano we gotta do another round. We should have sent him on campus visits. I mean, he's a top recruit. Casey is. We should have sent him to Fifth Third Arena, <laughs> Centos Center. Well, I was thinking – I was thinking, and I'll leave this open for you guys. I was thinking we have Casey send, like, a DM or, like, a video to every school in the conference that wins and says, like, why should I be a fan of your team? And then we just see what schools respond. Well, half of them might not have any <laughs> All right, go. All right, here we go. Now we 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 are picking the SEC. This is it, right here. Whatever it lands, this is brutal. We're go not ahead. landing. We're picking the school that it, or the conference that it lands on. We're Carolina, not Carolina. All right, here yeah, we go. We want an ACC, right? Probably yeah, want for sure. Probably want an ACC. School. It uh -oh. is. Oh, oh ACC. Yeah. Nice. All right, start start going on here. All right, we got to put the ACC in here and pick your team. All right. Well, that's this a good is, conference to get. This is a good conference. At least you yeah. get to see some decent basketball, Casey. That's yeah. right, Casey. And yeah, like we, we talked about, you're almost ooh, guaranteed Syracuse? that every team in a conference is going to be on television, even though you said you had ESPN Plus, right? <laughs> right, yeah. So you can watch them anyway. Yeah. Wait, you know what? You know, you know what we should do? None of these teams play till Friday. And instead of typing this in, let's just leave it for Friday's box lunch. 
Fair. Let's just leave it That's for fair. Friday instead right. of instead of going through and typing fifteen ACC. names in here. And you can start sending emails to Jim Beheim. Yeah. Yeah. To That's right. uh, Hubert uh, Davis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All the guys in the ACC. Almost everybody plays Friday, so we'll do it Friday. Okay. Is there any team in the ACC before Tom goes? That's Tom. Would you say there's any one that are truly bad in the ACC? Oh. Like you would yeah, have. There, 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 really, I mean, there, there's some know. teams. I mean, although I keep forgetting, you know, who's good every year. I love the coach. Virginia uh, is well. Virginia's top fifteen, I think, yeah. this year. Miami of Florida is turning yeah, into a really good program. Right? Maryland's not a terrible team usually. Who? Maryland. Big, big they're 10. The big 10. Big 10. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, it's hard to get used to. You're right. Um, who else? Duke decade. is always good. I've had long enough to remember that. You know Duke is always good. Duke. Yeah, NC that's... State. Eh. Georgia Tech's pretty bad. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Virginia Tech. Eh. And they, there's yeah. sometimes yeah. their service. Yeah. Okay. Not, 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 I mean, not, not a, bad. Not a big basement. I mean, not not a low no. basement. In, in you got Wake ACC. Forest. I mean, Virginia Tech so did much. win the ACC tournament last year. Yeah, like, so that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You're right. You'll catch them on a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Syracuse. Yeah, I like Boy, those schools. Boston I'm College. How they looking? Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Syracuse. Yeah, Syrac is Syracuse on like this? Um, are they in a situation where you obviously can't let go of the man, and we all know who that man is? But it's like. At some point, hasn't been good for a while, right? No. Well, he had his kids around there the last couple of years, so you're not going to fire the guy when 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 sure. his kids are playing. Yeah. How I, well, you can't really. I mean, I mean, well, I don't know. Yeah, Fire's right. a strong right. word, That's right? You got to ask him yeah. to let him. Like, hey, coach. I don't know you though. You got to replace him with somebody. Seventy-seven. I think Syracuse yeah. is a big enough job where you can get somebody. That's that's so Jim. Behind. That venue's tired. Jim Behind, 77, and he just his, – his final son just graduated, right? He's yeah. 22. I mean, Tom, can you imagine having a five-year-old kid right now? Yes. I'd be training him up. <laughs> Train him up. Coach him up. Champion. Absolutely. Yeah. I keep telling my wife all the City time, let's go out and adopt like five kids. A center. I tell her that every guard. day. We're a year away – we're months away from being empty nesters. I, I've been telling her for years. I really? Said, I said, let's go get two or three more and do this whole thing all over again. Really? really? You're that guy? Absolutely. See, my wife wants you another kid. Coach him up. Coach him up. Do you wish no you participation trophies. Coach him up. <laughs> do you wish you – because you have two, right? Yes. Do you wish you would have had a couple more back when back when the, the – No, not when you're going through. You know, because you're kind of figuring it all out. And not that mm -hmm. we haven't figured it out by any means now. But, I mean, I think once – and you guys will find out. Your years are young. You know, you, now I think you would you – would, um, I think – I think it'd be fun to do it again. Um, who knows? We'll see what happens. Well, if be you're going to do it, I think you should go to California and save a few. Oh, yeah. For your yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 As we talked about yesterday when I was winning all those championships in basketball. Now they don't even want me near the gym. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No participation troubles. Well, if you have kids in California, you don't even have to train them to use a toilet. You train them like a dog. You can go outside. Just exactly ring the right. bell, Crapping open the up the door, and Crapping just go street. outside. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's what we do around our house. Luke and I just go out and take a leak <laughs> right outside the door. That's actually true. All right. Fellas, have a good one. Adios. Stop.